So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Against a promise I made to a Commons listener named Danielle, there is some salty language in the episode spoken by yours truly. Listener discretion advised. You've been warned. Our government is making climate change a top priority. We're here to help, to build an agreement that will do our children and our grandchildren proud. Yo, were you paying attention to these climate conference talks in Paris? Not really. I was more paying attention to Steph Curry just killing the whole NBA. <laughs> <laughs> Did you you miss some really big stuff then, man? Because like after the conference was over, it looked like the scene in Independence Day when they blow up the mothership. Like people were jumping and hugging and crying. Oh, it was gosh. like the world has been saved were there, from like, evil the once warriors again. In Africa, like thrusting spears up into the air, like <laughs> we finally did this. I see it, man. Like it really felt bizarre to have a whole bunch of people go into these private rooms, have these private conversations and negotiations that the majority of us do not understand, and then emerge triumphant. I'm not sure what there was to be triumphant about, particularly the fact that these deals that everyone made in their own countries to reduce their own national emissions are not binding. There's no consequence. We already tried to do this. Like, didn't we do this a while back? And then now we're back at the table again. Yes. So uh, what's going to be different this time around? Well, that's a fair question. The whole point here is that it seems like there's an international consensus that allowing greenhouse gas emissions to continue the way that they're going is unacceptable, that we can't actually survive as a species and perhaps even as a planet if we keep polluting the way that we are. Well, the planet's going to survive. When the planet wants to get rid of us, like it already has. (laughs) At moments where the planet's like, you know what, fuck all you, (laughs) it's time to go. Entire species just leave this planet. So Indeed. I don't know if it's a punishment for them hurting the earth exactly, but uh, I, I mean, I understand what you're <laughs> saying, man. It's just that, no, I, it's easy for people to be cynical here. But at the same time, there might be room for optimism. 196 countries getting together for the first time, including the largest emitters in the world, and saying we actually do need to do something about this is historic. Okay, that's, that's great. But at the same time, like, what am I going to be able to do in my day-to-day life to actually affect any change here. Stop driving that SUV, fam. Well, listen, I have a couple of dogs and I drive a long way to get to work. Like, I don't really understand what I'm supposed to do. I can't drive a smart car on the 401. You know, I'm just trying to push you a little bit here. No, but, but, see, no, no, but, it's, but like, it's true. But it's, it's, it's everyday decisions that actual human beings make. Yes. Like to get inside the car and drive to work where you got to dro- like drop off your kids at school first and you have to like get groceries and you have to run errands. And then when you get home, you have to like heat your house. You as a citizen don't have control over whether your municipality is burning oil or burning coal 
to power your home. Okay, well, you can demand alternatives from your government. You can ask your government, look, if you're going to invest in something, invest in something that's going to help us make a better choice than the choices that we have to make now. Look, we used to have acid rain falling on this country 30 and 40 years ago. We didn't say, well, we can't change our lifestyle choices. We said it's probably unacceptable to keep allowing acid rain to fall on the ground and destroy the environment. And at that time, there were still people arguing, oh, well, that's not really the smoke that's going into the air. And even if it is a smoke going into, well, what are you supposed to do? Are you just supposed to shut down factories? So I don't agree that there's no hope here and that we can't actually affect things in our day-to-day lives. But we, we do have to ask the government Look, invest in things that'll make it easier for us. Invest in the transit that'll make it easier for us to not have to drive as often. Not never drive again, but give us some alternatives so that we can make better choices. You know what happens every single time we come back to this conversation about let's like have alternatives and better choices. It always comes down to dollars and cents. Yeah. Toronto's a really good example for this because we have way too many people for a far inadequate transit system. And every time the conversation comes around like, okay, well, we actually have to do something to improve this transit system so we don't have people driving from the suburbs into downtown for work and then being belched out again at the end of the afternoon, well, we don't want to have to pay the taxes to increase our public transit. Or what? we can't even find the revenue because we can't even like charge municipal sales tax or our land transfer tax is too much. So it always comes down to the government's A, spending too much money on stuff that we don't value, or B, they're collecting too much money from us when we can't afford it. Okay. So what we've got coming up today is a guest from the University of Waterloo, a climate professor, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about what might happen if we are able to meet our greenhouse gas targets. Can we save the planet? And what happens if we don't? We also have somebody who was a part of the Canadian youth delegation to the Paris Climate Conference. She had a few choice words about that, and I want to hear about what she had to say. Let's do this thing, man. I'm Andre Demise. And I'm Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land Comments. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Jason Thistlethwaite is an assistant professor in the Faculty of the Environment at the University of Waterloo. We thought Jason would be a great person to help us understand the basics of the agreement that was reached in Paris. The biggest agreement until this point was something um, known as the Kyoto Protocol. And this was more or less the first um, time that governments had come together and said, okay, we're going to uh, work together and each agree to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Now, Kyoto, for the most part, has has been a failure. You know, our government was actually the first government under Harper to pull out of the agreement, and it really hasn't led to the type of emissions reductions that we'd like to see. A a big part of it is that some of the world's largest contributors to emissions, uh, some of the emerging economies like China and India, weren't actually a part of the agreement that committed to reducing emissions. So Paris was supposed to be sort of the next step. Like, we're going to come together, we're going to figure it out, and and actually get this done. You know, all joined together and figure out some sort of um, common approach to reduce our emissions. What is it about this time that's making it so crucial? Like, something's actually going to get accomplished at the Paris conference. It didn't get accomplished at the Kyoto conference. So, I want to explain a little bit of what 
happened in Paris, just to give it some sense of why this actually is something that's important. And you know, we can talk a little bit about whether or not it's, it's, it was worth everyone's time to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the first time we've had a large number of governments. In fact, almost 96% of the world's emissions produced by governments. This is the first time they've all committed to their own national uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction target. So uh, Canada, for instance, has committed to cut its emissions by 30% from levels in 2005. Overall, this is far more aggressive than what we've, we've done historically, each government committing to having its own individual target. What we did before that is we said, let's create a common target that we'll all work towards. So this is a much more, a much more favorable agreement for individual governments. Fam, you want to tell me that the last time they got together, each government didn't individually say, okay, this is what we are going to do. Like, we didn't even do that. Well, we did, but we never, no one ever kept their promise. There were some countries that managed to reduce their emissions, but for the most part, no one was able to. And, and this time around, we had some bigger players there that were much more willing to participate, like the U.S. and China. So the more interesting part about what happened in Paris is that we have these agreements. Now what we're going to do is every five years is we're going to do something they're calling a stock taking, where we go and take a look collectively at whether or not we're actually meeting our targets. So these national targets aren't regulated. There aren't laws. They aren't binding. No one actually has to reduce their emissions if they don't want to. But you could end up being shamed or identified publicly by the United Nations for, for really not holding up your part of the deal. So the idea here, I guess, is a sense of national domestic accountability is that who's going to hold you accountable are your own citizens because you made this promise on the international stage and you're expected now to keep it. Yeah, uh, and so I mean, it really, it really relies on your. <laughs> sorry, no, sorry. it really relies on your own citizens giving a shit about climate change. I, right? I was going to say, I'm really having a hard time believing. Can, okay, l- listen, I drive an SUV. I live out in the suburbs, right? So I'm probably like part of the problem. Yeah, but I'm having a hard time believing that my neighbors are actually like picking up the paper in the morning and flipping it open and be like, "Oh my gosh, Canada's not meeting its climate control targets." Yeah, phone your MPP and or your MPP yeah, and like who's actually going to call up their MPP and be like, "I can't believe this is happening." We're actually not meeting our targets. I'm going to make sure that I vote you out next time. Like, who's... Nobody cares, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is something that is a little more interesting. I think people care much more about climate change now than, than we have historically, or, or even over the last 20 years. And, it, it, you know, it may not be, you know, everyone, but soon enough, it, it will start to be everyone because it's going to start to cost them. It's going to start to cost them through things like um, higher insurance prices because of uh, increases in extreme weather. It's going to start to cost them because governments are going to be needing to put more money towards things like handling climate change refugees who come over their borders from dangerous areas. So, you know, governments are trying their best to be proactive on this front. And, you know, here we have the blessing of being in a, you know, a developed rich country where most of the stuff is considered happening in other parts of the world. So I know it's difficult to to think that we are going to be able to keep ourselves accountable to these types of agreements. But, uh, you know, the give a shit factor is is, is much higher these days than it it has ever been. Okay, now, Jason, we want to, as a target, bring our emissions levels uh, to 30 percent less than they were in 2005. So which industries are most responsible for helping us get to that target in Canada and what are they going to have to do to meet that? This is really challenging. So uh, the two largest source of emissions in Canada are the oil and gas industry. So, you know, there we're talking a lot about uh, the oil sands and transportation. Now, the oil and gas... It's not Calforts? 
I've been hearing a lot about car farts lately. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I know, every time I have a conversation about like climate change, everyone's trying to tell me, yeah, but did you know that cow farts actually account for the majority of emissions? I and think, what about volcanoes? I think you've been taken in by some of the diversionary tactics here <laughs> around climate change conversation, Andre. But please, Jason, go on. <laughs> well, you know, agriculture is, is a contribution, but you know, you got to look at things we can do something about, right? So transportation and, and oil and gas are our two largest sorts of emissions. So th- the big challenge there is that those emissions are, are quite concentrated. So they're coming out of the oil and gas sector in places like Alberta. And, and really, that's where most of our future emissions are likely to come from. So what we have to start doing there is we have to significantly increase their efficiency and, and reduce their emissions. And Alberta is actually taking some steps in the right direction, you know, implementing a $30 per ton carbon tax. So the big emitters are now going to have to pay every time they release a, a ton of greenhouse gas emissions. The theory being this acts as an incentive for them to invest in things like renewables and, and gradually, you know, reduce those types of emissions. So I think that's, you know, something to be quite optimistic about. Transportation is more difficult. I mean, Ultimately, transportation is about us driving in from the suburbs, right? Not walking when it's cold outside and these types of things. And so I'm, we're going to actually... I'm starting to take that a little bit personal, man. <laughs> Should well, I not I mean... idle my car before I get into it in the morning? <laughs> well, you know what? In a future sort of low carbon world where we're going, the suburbs are really going to be a thing of the past. They are not uh, a viable way. What are to- you t- <laughs> listen? Where are you actually going to be able to buy real estate in the Greater Toronto Area if not in the suburbs? Like, fam, we got a property out in Oshawa, which for those of you who are not familiar with Toronto, is about an hour east, and I work an hour west of Toronto. So, what do you want me to do? Well, th- this is something that we need to figure out. It's a great point. It's way too expensive to live in the areas where you know the dense areas where. We uh, need people to live to have a low-carbon lifestyle. So we need much more investment in things like public transit and sustainable infrastructure to give people the opportunity. You know, if this is the place where you can afford to live, you ought to be able to get where you want to go, but um, have a a low-carbon option. And Jason, tell us a little bit about what Canada could look like if we fail to meet these targets and allow climate change to continue at its current trajectory. Palm trees down Young Street. <laughs> <laughs> Besides that, I think there's a there's a few things that you can have a look at. Generally speaking, warmer. You know, the winter that we've seen this year is a good example of that. I think everyone more or less appreciates that. You're going to see much warmer temperatures um, in the summer, so far more extreme heat days. So I hope you you know I hope you have a good cheap air conditioner because that's something we're definitely going to be needing much more of. Our coastlines are going to be far more at risk to things like storm surge and coastal flooding. So, you know, every time I'm lucky enough to, to fly into Vancouver, I'm looking at that Richmond airport and going, wow, I mean, this thing's so low. I mean, good luck protecting this place. Weeds, far more weeds. Um, those are, I guess, some of the more subtle examples. On the more extreme end, uh, you're going to see things like potentially migrations of people up and around the Great Lakes to wherever they can find sources of fresh water. So the U.S. Southwest is going to be really, really problematic. There's no water down there and people are going to end up getting far too warm and and hot. So, you know, we're going to have to figure out ways of of dealing with climate migrants. I kind of feel like if you chose to live in Arizona, that's your own fault. (laughs) (laughs) That's just me, but... Well, when I think about it, I, you know, I'm thinking, what's going to end up happening? I mean, are, are, are we going to have to sell our water to the the U.S. or are they gonna are they gonna force us to sell our water? And I thought, no, nah, the Americans are just so uncoordinated. It'll end up being that the northern states sort of come together with the Canadian contingent and protect their own fresh water to the to the peril of those in other parts. 
the best way to think about how Canada is going to be different, well, at least in my mind and, and what I spend my time researching on is is uh, from the extreme weather angle. So the 2013 flood there in, in Toronto in July where, you know, the GO train stuck uh, near the DVP. Yeah. Th- that's the TTC a- subway was flooded. I was actually driving down Lakeshore that day oh. um, in, in a big four-door sedan, by the way, out to the suburbs. <laughs> you know, uh, and I was driving down Lakeshore, which is like the closest street to Lake Ontario. I saw people that had to like get out of their cars and let the water flood into their car and sit up on top of the roof and wait for help. Yeah, well, if you don't stop uh, driving to and from the suburbs, that's that's the future we're going to be looking at. Looking at you, Andre. Um, <laughs> and what about the Arctic? What about northern Canada? We hear so much already about fears of melting polar ice caps, fears about a traditional hunting grounds for Indigenous people uh, being altered significantly right now. How could that change as this goes on? This is something that isn't talked about too much, but it's it's a total new sense of place for, for many people, you know, not just in the North, but in Canada in general, you, you know, no more backyard ponds uh, for hockey, <laughs> much more expensive hockey, because it's going to be not going to be cheap to keep our rinks air conditioned. In the North in particular, you're going to see much more economic vulnerability. These people have developed a way of life that is based on the assumption that the climate is going to be the same as it was historically as it is going to be in the future. It's going to be far more difficult to get access to people. Um, you know, Ice roads, for instance, are a big way of, of getting around in the North. We're going to have to figure out ways of getting food up there and growing food up there. You're going to have much more flooding um, and melting permafrost that will end up impacting things like infrastructure. So it's a profound change for uh, Canada's northern population. There's no doubt about it. Jason of House Thistlethwaite, <laughs> apparently you're a big Game of Thrones fan and you can explain this concept through Game of Thrones. So let's hear it. Right. Some of my colleagues and, and other people have explored how we can use Game of Thrones to understand climate change. And it's actually a, a really useful comparison. for and, and Game of Thrones for all the uncool people in the audience, because apparently neither Desmond nor producer Kevin Sexton watched Game of Thrones. So think about it like The Sopranos, but during the medieval era. Exactly. It, what's, the, the, what's The Sopranos? Okay, I'm kidding. Okay, I'm, kidding. I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm done. I'm done. I'm checking out. <laughs> Jason, this, please this go show ahead. is called the Commons. I mean, you got to be. You guys got to be have some hot takes on some of this pop culture stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, it's it's really about a rivalry between uh, several noble families to govern this kingdom of Westeros. Now, there's a common threat that faces all of these royal families or governments, as, as they would be in, in the modern era. And that is the fact that winter, this really devastating force, can come and dramatically change the environment around them. And winter is actually brought by this group of people known as the White Walkers. The White Walkers. Yes. This is an inhuman destructive force that changes the weather, just like climate change. But instead of winter in Game of Thrones, we're talking about warming weather and, and here and all the extremes that, that come with it. Now, in Game of Thrones, just like our governments here, they're all worried about their short-term fights over power, and they're really ignoring this existential threat from winter. So it's a kind of a good comparison to understand you know, the sort of short-term squabbles that our governments have, you know, really ignoring this big threat from winter. Just like the climate scientists we have um, 
Now there are people in Game of Thrones concerned about winter, and they try and warn the families. So this is the the Night's Watch. So the Watch. climate scientists would be okay. Oh, yeah, uh, the Night's Watch, or mm-hmm. maybe even the Wildlings north of the Wall. The Wildlings. That's a good one. I, I kind of see those as being some of the more vulnerable people. So you know, we all our governments are, despite the calls of the Night's Watch to warn people, you know, and our governments aren't taking any type of action. The Wildlings are actually representative of sort of the world's poorest people. They're they're the ones that are going to be most affected because they do live up there. Okay, we're going to get into this then. All right, so if the the White Walkers are climate change and the Wildlings are the world's poor, who is Justin Trudeau in this analogy? Good question. Is he, he Jon Snow? Yeah, I think that is a good, oh, good hold comparison. On, I'm, sorry, I'm going too far with this because now I'm imagining David Suzuki in like a red wig <laughs> saying, you know nothing, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I think Justin Trudeau. Yeah, he, he, I guess now in Canada he's very much a, a John Snow because he is very, very worried. But David Suzuki is a far better comparison for John Snow. You know, he's been warning about climate change for 25 years, and, and no one's been paying attention. So, yeah. uh, you know, that that's probably a better example of John Snow. I'd say. No, I think that would be Benjamin Stark. Hmm. Yeah, Benjamin was like warning about this for a long time and nobody was listening to him. I'm sorry, I have no wow. idea what the hell y'all are talking about right now. <laughs> sorry. But this I, is I, what happens when you get Game of Thrones fans talking about this ish. I mean, in Game of Thrones, if somebody warns about the weather, do they kind of like get their funding cut? Like what happens to them? Because I figure that nobody <laughs> no, really wants die. to listen to <laughs> they them. Die. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, so you get your head cut. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's far worse. <laughs> well, you're lucky that this analogy can only be extended so far, I guess, Jason. But seriously, what is the likelihood that Justin Trudeau, that all of these other world leaders are going to follow through on this, given that it's not legislated, there is no penalty for not doing it? What is the likelihood that they are going to come through and start to reduce these emissions in your mind? Actually, one thing that... that, that pisses me off about uh, this discussion is that there is this huge focus on what Justin Trudeau and and these leaders and federal governments really um, are going to be able to do about climate change. And for the most part, all the people who are, are doing the most work are places like cities, municipalities, and in Canada in particular, the provinces. They've actually done quite a bit already to try and reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And there's some Something. There's a reason to be optimistic about this. Word so up, t- Ontario, first province to not have coal-fired plants anymore. Amen. I mean, that actually represents the largest greenhouse gas reduction of any industrialized jurisdiction in North America. You know, and we have other, other provinces are doing good things too. You know, BC has a very successful carbon tax. Alberta is now going to do a carbon tax. Places like Quebec and, and Manitoba have agreed to take these actions. So, cities, provinces, and the people that are actually most affected by this changing weather, they're taking the actions right now that we need to, to reduce our emissions. It's nice to have the federal government as a player here because, you know, we spent the last, under Harper, you know, it was very much missing in action and, and leaving all the heavy lifting to, to be done by the provinces and municipalities. So we're on the right track. And you know what? We all went to Paris and we said, we're going to take these actions to reduce our emissions. It's kind of like signing up for the gym. You know, now you actually have to show up. thanks jason thanks erica violet lee is a student at the university of saskatchewan she's also an activist with idle no more she was in the paris climate conference as part of the canadian youth delegation to be in this gorgeous place and i'm walking along this idyllic riverbank and everything is so artistic and aesthetically pleasing there that's like their number one goal And uh, I walked to this monument that was for the Algerian War. 
and it said Algerian War Monument this way, and I said, oh, cool, this is this is good, this is important. And then the second I got there, I realized it was a monument for the French soldiers who had colonized Algeria. The poor fallen French soldiers. And it's, it's a funny thing, too, because everyone tells me how beautiful Paris is and how beautiful France is, really. And it's like, yeah, but all of that beauty was obtained on the back of their colonialism and, and their slave economies. So is it really that beautiful when you think about that? Totally. And it's like such a... A weird a conflict, I think, to be there and and trying to appreciate some level of beauty without like because you have to without otherwise you'll go crazy. And I found that when I was there for like two and a half weeks of being in a place where like as an indigenous person, my identity was entirely removed from me. People don't even necessarily recognize me as indigenous looking at me because they still think that indigenous people just walk around wearing headdresses constantly. Like they have no... <laughs> No concept that we're actually living. There's a whole restaurant actually in Paris, a chain of restaurants called Indiana. It's a like an, a native-themed chain of restaurants. And it's not even like there's not one central theme. It's just a bunch of randomly amalgamated indigenous groups and pictures. And it's super weird. Erica, help bring this home then for our listeners. What does you being in Paris for a climate conference have to do with colonialism? Yeah, so um, this is my first time at like any kind of high-level United Nations negotiation session. It was super out of my out of my comfort zone. I'm like, I guess all of the organizing and community activism I've done has been rooted in Saskatoon, in my own communities. And so to be in Paris at this time, when everybody suddenly is concerned about the climate and everyone is concerned about this big climate negotiation deal, and then to be in the heart of that and recognize, oh, this is still just a bunch of men in suits making these deals that actually screw the poorest countries, that screw the most vulnerable populations, like indigenous people and people of color who are disproportionately facing the effects of climate change already. So like someone like Brad Wall, the premier of Saskatchewan, is there trying to petition for more investment into coal and oil. Meanwhile, there's indigenous people from islands who are seeing their islands shrink, like literally physically shrink because of climate change and just realizing why does Brad Wall have a better footing in these climate negotiations than someone who's seeing their home shrink because of climate change. I was actually going to ask that because, I mean, Indigenous Canadians, at least to my understanding, have been on the front line of uh, fighting against the, uh, the coal and oil industries. So what does it feel like being people who are like on the front line of that movement and then going to Paris and it's almost like you don't even exist? Yeah, and um, the ways we do exist in that space are super tokenistic and like one-dimensional. People really always, like they would see the media come around when there was someone who fit the sort of stereotypical representation of what we're supposed to look like and the way we're supposed to approach these climate negotiations. So like, they want me to talk about Mother Earth and they want me to talk about these one-dimensional things and if I'm saying like well colonialism then all of a sudden the media like goes off because they're not interested in that anymore did they expect you to have like one tear rolling down your eye as you talked about this (laughs) exactly (laughs) totally Erica what were you hoping to get out of being in Paris 
I had no idea. When I decided to go, I thought it was really important that there's more Indigenous people from Canada in these negotiations because it was portrayed as such a huge event, like this climate talk in Paris, which is another another way that colonialism works, right? It's like if the talk was in a, in a different locale, it wouldn't be as pressing. But because it's in Paris and because there's, there's numbers about the amount of carbon spilling into the atmosphere lit up on the Eiffel Tower, all of a sudden this is a matter of, of real concern. Um, and it was really like I came back more of a nihilist because of just the extent of performance that went on around by politicians who are interested in looking like they're getting the best deal for their country, but actually just completely underselling and selling away everything that's really important. Now, you were there at the same time as a great many Canadian politicians as a youth delegate. What were your interactions with them like? Did you have any interactions with them? Yeah, um, we, we did try to meet with Trudeau and Trudeau offered us only a selfie opportunity. And so we made an action um, holding up placards that said like youth want change, not just selfies. <laughs> yes. um, because <laughs> oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So much of the what we're expected to fulfill as a youth delegation, which they found we weren't willing to do right away, is to just stand there and like back up their policies, which is crap. So in these negotiations and these meetings, we were throwing real questions at them like, so when are you going to shut down the tar sands? When are you going to stop trying to run pipelines through unceded indigenous territory? Wow, shots fired. Yeah. We actually, we had to push really hard for a meeting with Catherine McKenna, who's the environment minister. And she finally met with us. And it's really strange because we had seen all of these pictures on her Twitter. And of course, that's how we're staying up to date with like what's going on because so much is going on. We just like follow her on Twitter. Yeah. And on her Twitter, she had met with Synovus, Enbridge, Suncor, all of these huge oil corporations, weeks before she had agreed to a meeting with the Canadian youth delegation. And we challenged her on it. And she said, well, you know, these people have to be at the table because we're hashtag all in this together. And so, so when I hear... Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You asked her, why is it that you're meeting with oil and gas companies before meeting with the actual people whose land they want to run the pipelines through? And her answer was, we're all in this together. Yeah, and that's like that's been the the liberal campaign. It's just weird to um, be talking to a politician and recognize that we're just operating on completely different levels. Like Glenn Coulthard, who's this indigenous scholar, talks about uh, recognition and the idea of like how long do we as indigenous people have to fight to get our basic humanity recognized by someone else? Like why is that our the only thing? we end up doing in our lives and it's so frustrating like just like to sit in the same room as Catherine McKenna and I made sort of like a lighthearted jab but it wasn't really a jab when they asked us for real policy recommendations I said well shut down the tar sands uh stop running pipelines through our lands and third return the land and the way they responded was to stare off into the corner like I hadn't said anything like we can't even have a serious like a serious or even a friendly conversation because we're operating on such different platforms. Now your delegation had a list of demands for the Canadian government, one of which was quote reject false solutions. 
what does reject false solutions mean in terms of your demands? Yeah, so for that, we were challenging all of sort of the, the politician rhetoric that came out. Like, people were messaging me when I was in Paris and asking, like, oh, is Canada really being a leader in, in indigenous rights? Because that's what we're hearing through the news. And meanwhile, of course, like, we're going through the on-the-ground negotiations and hearing things like, well, you know, Suncor has to be at the table, too, because we're all in this together. And so hearing those types of that rhetoric, the idea that for some reason, sitting down at a table with these destructive oil companies that have no place in any concept of reconciliation or justice, that's not progress. But Erica, at the same time, Suncor and many of these other oil and gas corporations are a very, very significant part of the Canadian economy. Is it really realistic to say, shut down major oil and gas developments and that should be part of the Canadian government's plan? I think it absolutely is. And I think that I understand that there's very real like human costs that have to be discussed when we're talking about like shutting down the oil sands or sorry tar sands tar sands not oil sands why do you insist on that language (laughs) by the way why do you insist on that language because i it's 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 about not greenwashing it and so this is interesting because Catherine mckenna actually brought this up too she said i'm accountable to the people who who need the oil industry to survive i'm accountable to all of these people that will lose their jobs if the tar sands are shut down and my response was well i'm here and i'm accountable to people i know who have gotten sick from eating fish from their rivers who can't hunt on the grounds that their ancestors have hunted on for centuries now i'm accountable to people who can't breathe the air and can't drink the water out of their own homelands, you know? And to me, that's a lot more practical and pragmatic than um, wanting to, I don't know, sustain a failing economy that's based on something that's not just not sustainable anymore. Halfway through the conference, you tweeted a picture and there was a man, he was making a salad, and you put this caption. Your caption was, hashtag COP21 is fucked. Let's (laughs) add the whole package of feta cheese to this salad. Nighttime at CYDDJC headquarters. What, what does that even mean? It's interesting to be held accountable for my tweets like this, first off. This is a really <laughs> fascinating... Listen, if I got to, you got to, too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, that was some members of my the Canadian Youth Delegation, the, the delegation that I went to Paris with. This was after um, one of the last days of negotiating. And this, these are like 12-plus hour days. And there's like 30 things happening at once. It was really hard to to like leave the conference center at the end of the day and just like remember to feed yourself right or remember to um oh yeah i need to like take care of myself if i'm going to survive these negotiations and especially you know that's true for for women or for people of color for people who identify as immigrants on our delegation for indigenous people you'd go into these negotiations where people were debating whether or not we should keep indigenous rights in and then they would like eliminate indigenous rights and then you'd have to go home at the end of the day. Hold on, there were people saying let's eliminate indigenous rights from the language? Yeah, they took the rights of indigenous peoples out of any kind of binding agreement in Paris. Do you know who was arguing for the removal? Yeah, it was um, it was a bunch of countries. We had asked the Canadian minister uh, McKenna about this and she said well it was the developing countries you have to talk to the developing countries which I thought was a really vague and weird answer but 
it was in the second article and there was a big fight to keep this in. Um, this is one of the most dramatic moments of most of it, is the fight to keep human rights, the rights of occupied peoples and indigenous rights in the text as like part of this legally binding agreement. And they didn't succeed in that. I guess I'm a little bit blown away by all this because the impression I got, at least just by watching it on television, it's almost like a bunch of world leaders went into a negotiation, went into a conference and came out saying, yep, we saved the world. And you're saying that almost the exact opposite of that happened. Yeah. And I think um, it's not enough. And I'm I'm realizing that more and more now. Um, so like thinking about, um, well, don't we have to think about a sustainable way to, to shut down the tar sands and won't that devastate our economy and, and questions like that. Um, I'm just completely removed from that now. I recognize that I'm part of Canadian society, whether I like it or not now. And the fact that we have to take into account um, some, building something sustainable but the reality is we're going way too slow to just like keep up with the amount of destruction that we're causing to the planet. So I'm I'm pretty frustrated by any kind of fake shallow solutions to this massive crisis that's actually killing people right now. Well then Erica, given your feelings about the conference, are you still glad that you went? I am glad that I went. And part of what I thought was interesting to be at these negotiations is a chance to actually be there and like see it happening and to write something that might otherwise not be written. Like there's still so few indigenous people and people of color and frontlines communities at these negotiations and they tried to cut it like by a lot actually this year too. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of a fan of, of working my way into spaces where I know I'm not supposed to be and, <laughs> and reflecting back on them. That's our show for this week. If you'd like to find us on social media and continue this conversation, and I highly suggest you do, you can find us on Twitter. Just search for Canada Land Commons. It's the first result you find. We are also on Facebook. So if you want to have them conversations on Facebook, please do that. I will be jumping into the conversations to talk my ish. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Kevin Sexton. And for the music by Nathan Burley. We're online at CanadaLandShow.com. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for the newsletter, Not Sorry. It is really funny. It's put together by Vicky Machama. I love her to death. Get at us on the email, Desmond at CanadaLandShow.com. And I'm Andre at CanadaLandShow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this show, since you like this show, support us. That's Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Because we're human beings with actual lives, CanadaLand shortcuts and comments are going to be off next week. But we're looking forward to bringing you guys more in 2016. So we'll see you then. It's, it's tougher than you think explaining Game of Thrones. Well, that's why we have you here. I, I, say, I say it's the Sopranos with... Uh, yeah, it's the Sopranos with swords. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good way to think about it, actually. And a lot of dicks. A lot of dicks and boobs. Yeah, Um, a lot lot of white people, too. (laughs) (laughs) I like this guy already. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. 
You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.